from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CEA podcast. My name is Sofia Besch. I'm in conversation today with Agata Gostinska-Jakubowska, who's a senior research fellow at the CEA's Brussels office. Hi, Agata. We're here to talk about the new von der Leyen Commission, of course, that is currently being formed in Brussels and that will be in power for the next five years, shaping EU policy until 2024. So European Commission President-elect Ursula von der Leyen has revealed her commissioners and she has said who she wants to do which job in her administration. The next few days will decide if her choices stick and how she will start her term. Agatha, you have argued in the past that von der Leyen should follow Juncker, so the previous commission president example, and organize the work of commissioners around her major priorities. What do you think? Has she taken this advice on board? And could you maybe walk listeners through the new college of commissioners, standout candidates, the big personalities? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to do this. Um, yes, in fact, uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen took some of our recommendations on board. <laughs> um, I would like to believe that she read our bulletin uh, piece. She indeed followed Juncker's example and organized um, her college around her priorities. So as you remembered, she, in her political guidelines that she presented to the European Parliament, she basically elaborated on some big ideas, one of them being, you know, European Green Deal, another one, Europe fit for the digital age. Well, the third one was, you know, a push for the European democracy, etc. And in fact, she organized her college around those uh, priorities. So she kept in a way similar uh, hierarchy. She kept the institution of the vice president who are coordinating the work of individual commissioners. But she also uh, uh, went for another layer in the organization of the uh, commission. She um, introduced the system of the executive uh, vice uh, president. In a way, um, she was forced actually to do this by the European leaders who, as you may remember, told her explicitly to make sure that Franz Timmermans and Margrethe Vestager, uh, who were both frontrunners for actually von der Leyen's job, they told uh, von der Leyen explicitly to make sure that they uh, have senior uh, role in her college. Um, and she kept that promise. Um, but what she also did, she added another executive vice president Uh, who already served and is serving in the current uh, commission, that's Valdis Dombrovskis, 
to the, the level of the executive uh, vice presidents. Many actually say that this was a very smart move on behalf of von der Leyen because she made sure that actually uh, you know, th- 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 there is this uh, equal uh, political balance on that level because both the EPP, uh, so European People's Party, Socialists and Democrats and Liberals are represented there. And obviously she is the one uh, on top. Um, what uh, she, I mean, another novelty uh, she decided to go for and in a way, good for her, is that she empowered those executive vice presidents with the access to the resources, meaning that those three vice presidents um, who will be in charge of, you know, Dombrovsky is in charge of the economy uh, that works for the people, uh, Timmermans for the European Green Deal, uh, Green Deal and Vestager for the Europe that fit that is fit for the digital age, they will uh, have their own DGs. My research, actually, and we've also uh, said about this on, on, on some occasions, my research has shown that in the past, vice presidents really complained that they didn't have access uh, to to those resources, they had to rely. Even though you know they were coordinating the work of other commissioners, they had to rely mainly on the resources from the Secretariat uh, General. Um, uh, whereas their own commissioners were obviously in charge of uh, DGs. Now that has changed. But there, you know, as always, there is but. The average, you know, vice vice president, as it was for the Junkers Commission, will not have access to those resources. So we have this very strange, and stop me if I'm becoming too nerdy, but we have this very strange situation where you have the executive vice presidents with access to the resources, and then we have vice presidents with basically no access to the resources, and commissioners, by the way, usually coming from powerful big member states, like, for example, Sylvie Goulart, um, who will be in charge of the single market, managing their own and sort of having access to DGs. So the question really is, what is there to do for those vice presidents? Uh, who are sort of, you know, in the middle on, 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 this, on this ladder. And, and, and then there is obviously another question. I, I went through the so-called mission letters that von der Leyen wrote to her designates, whereby basically these are the documents whereby she's setting what those uh, commissioners or vice presidents, etc., should be in charge of. The reading of some of those mission letters actually leaves me, you know, quite confused because I see that there are some overlaps, for example, in between the commissioners or vice presidents and other vice presidents. So, so we'll have to wait and see um, how that uh, uh, works out. But you ask also about big personalities. Well, I mean, there are some people from the current uh, commission college, Margrethe Vestager, 
uh, I think is one of the sort of rising stars uh, of, of this college. Uh, she will continue um, basically working on the competition policy, but she will be also in charge of basically, you know, sort of EU's voice vis-a-vis, you know, technological giants and also the America and the China. So she's having a very interesting portfolio. Franz Timmermans is no longer going to work on the rule of law. I guess uh, probably those in Warsaw and in, uh, perhaps in Budapest are sort of, you know, briefing with a relief. But he will be in charge of, the, uh, of climate, which I would like to call climate crisis rather than climate change, something that he felt pretty passionate about during his campaign. And then we have, you know, uh, some new faces, um, um, say, uh, perhaps not necessarily known to the average, uh, to the average people, but obviously to us insiders, that they are pretty known. You, you know, Margarita Sheenas, who is supposed to be in charge of protecting our European way of life portfolio, which has, you know, made waves in in Brussels in the last couple of days. He was uh, very close to, or he's been <laughs> very close to Jean Claude Juncker and being his chief spokesperson. Um, and we could go on and on, uh, but obviously our listeners will have five years to get to know those people, though I wouldn't hold my breath because it seems to me that some of those candidates' future you know, is not that certain because it's still in the hands of the European Parliament. Fascinating. And let me just say once and for all, it's never too nerdy for the CEA podcast. This is what we're here for. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. What you mentioned in your last answer there is the timeline that we're on. So let's talk about what will happen next with this dream team of commissioners that von der Leyen has assembled. Which hurdles will she have to pass in the next few days? Absolutely. So as you know, the European Parliament already voted on the candidacy of von der Leyen herself. She managed to secure her presidency by a very, very uh, tiny uh, majority, that is of nine votes. But now the European Parliament will have to approve her whole College uh, of Commissioners. And the European Parliament has always been of an opinion that, you know, before it uh, votes on the college, it needs to get to know each other candidates better. This is why the European Parliament, in a way, I mean, throughout the European history, I would say, imposed the tradition, the practice of hearings with the candidates for commissioners. And as you know perfectly well, also in the past, it did not hesitate to block some of the candidates. Um, um, for example, back in 2014, the Slovenians candidate, actually former Slovenian Prime Minister Alenka Bratusek was actually blocked uh, by the European Parliament. Now, obviously, you know, the lawyers could say, well, actually, the European Parliament does not have the competences to tell the Commission president which candidate she should go for, on, you know, and which candidate she should scrap. But keeping in mind that they will be voting on the whole college, she obviously needs to take their concerns 
into uh, account. And the European Parliament has been already signaling that it does not necessarily like some of the candidates. So I expect MEPs trying to shoot down, I would say even more than one uh, a candidate. And, you know, if you ask me who is going to be this uh, extremely unlucky person, then I would say that probably there will be two sorts of candidates. A first sort, basically, of those who perhaps not necessarily know all the ins and outs of the portf portfolio they've been uh, uh, provided with. Obviously, you could argue if you are, you know, if you are a commissioner or a vice president, you just have to know how to coordinate. But that's not how the European Parliament has been thinking about the role of individual commissioners. So the MEPs might try to show that, you know, some uh, candidates are not sufficiently uh, qualified. And then there will be another set of candidates, usually usually coming from, uh, let's call them, defiant member states, who, for example, have backtracked on the rule of law issue. And here some of the candidates that come to mind are, for example, Hungarian uh, 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 Hungarian commissioner-designate, who, by the way, uh, was entrusted the portfolio of um, neighborhood and enlargement, <laughs> even though he's coming, uh, he's coming from a member state that obviously has had its own issues uh, with the rule of law. And as you know, this is something, democracy promotion is something extremely important as a magnet, right, in the relations with the uh, third countries which have European ambitions. So that's something that the European Parliament will try to uh, point out to von der Leyen, that perhaps it's not the most uh, fortunate selection of uh, portfolio. Uh, interestingly, you know, in the last couple of days, the headlines are full of the accusations um, uh, over money laundering around the Belgian candidate Didier Reinders, who is supposed to be leading on the rule of law issues. So, you know, irrespective of what happens to him, whether he survives the scrutiny of the European Parliament and whether he's sort of cleared out of all the accusations, I can already see those member states backtracking on the rule of law, saying, you know, who is this person to tell us <laughs> whether, we are, um, whether we are in line with the, uh, with the EU rules. So, uh, again, slightly unfortunate uh, start from, for von der Leyen. Then we also have the Romanian candidate or the Polish candidate, which is now also being sort of, I think, preliminarily investigated by, by Olaf. Um, so these are those potentially being on the roster. And I can imagine quite a lot of discussion around those uh, candidates. Now, finally, uh, what we see, and again, we've talked about this on numerous occasions, this European Parliament is much more fragmented, right? So uh, you actually need a, a, an agreement of at least three major political groups to make sure, you know, that the von der Leyen's college is, um, is, is, is safe. So... Uh, um, and already some, some political groups have started hinting that there is no such a thing like a non-aggression pact. So they will be assessing each individual candidate via their merits, you know, and sort of moral standing, etc. 
So expect an interesting hearings uh, in the European Parliament. Wow, it sounds like that's going to be quite controversial for some of these candidates. That's going to happen in the next few days. In fact, on the 30th of September, I believe these hearings will start. Absolutely. Um, and let me just clarify one thing. You, you were talking about OLAF and OLAF, for those who might not know, is the European Anti-Fraud Office, not a Nordic commissioner. Absolutely. Can I just add perhaps uh, one point? I mean, if you look at what Ursula von der Leyen is about to basically experience, you know, she wants her number one objective is to increase her standing. You know, she remembers that she was voted in only with nine votes majority. So she, what she really wants to do is basically to make sure that she secures a greater majority for her college this time round, so she can immediately start implementing her uh, priorities. The way I see it, you know, it's not necessarily going the way she was hoping for. All right, so this is also about the legitimacy and the credibility of Ursula von der Leyen herself. What do you make then of the new commission leadership more generally? Will von der Leyen be able to follow up on her priorities, for example, boosting the EU's democracy? As you know, I was one of those who were actually arguing the think tank and academia community to give von der Leyen a chance. And I still think that she, you know, she will have five years to basically to, to show us that it was, it was worth our trust. I mean, on paper, von der Leyen seems to me be quite receptive to citizens' concerns. So just to give you an example, in the post-electoral survey, you know, 44% of the respondents said that they went to the polls because they were driven by, you know, their sort of concerns around the economy and growth. Then 37% said, you know, that the key priority or sort of key driver uh, behind their participation in the elections was climate change. And then 37% uh, said that it was democracy. I'm just referring to the survey which was commissioned by the European Parliament immediately uh, after election. And if you look into both political guidelines um, of von der Leyen, or her com uh, college structure, you will see that those concerns are reflected in, in the structure. I mean, we've talked already about this. Um, what bothers me a little bit is how she plans to deliver on those priorities, the promises she made to the, to the citizens. And here is where I'm not convinced that she took the right path. So what she did ahead of the vote in the European Parliament, she thought that she can deliver on the promises to the European citizens mainly by causing up to the European Parliament, right? What she did, for example, to, which to me was pretty controversial, she promised MEPs to give them de facto the right of legislative initiative. So in the EU tradition, law, etc., it is mainly the European Commission which has this monopoly. So the European Commission puts forward legislation uh, drafts. What von der Leyen did was she promised MEPs that if they vote in favor of certain policy proposals, she will then follow suit and put them on the table. And it seems to me that, you know, sort of putting all the eggs into the European Parliament basket could result in the public backlash. 
And why? Precisely because, you know, many citizens still think, even though the participation in elections increase, they still think that, for example, in response to financial crisis or refugee crisis, the EU went one step too far that it undermined, for example, member states' sovereignty in, you know, organizing the budgetary policies or even in deciding on who can enter their borders or sort of who can enter their territory or not. By actually giving more powers to the European Parliament, I think she's playing the pretty risky game because I'm pretty sure the Eurosceptics will try to use it and say, hang on a second, she's not necessarily, she does not necessarily understand your feelings. She's given even more powers to those European institutions. So that's one of the concerns I have. And then, in fact, it seems to me that the progress in those matters, um, which really, in those issues which really matter to the European citizens, so the, for example, Eurozone uh, uh, future, um, or even the rule of law, perhaps, refugee crisis, they do not depend on the European Parliament. They do not necessarily depend on the European Commission itself. The progress depends on the EU leaders' willingness, you know, to push, to push ahead. And it, I'm not sure sure she has recognized that really. Um, and what I see missing in her, uh, I would say, plans so far is basically, you know, this idea how to, for example, bridge the differences among member states, how to narrow those different uh, visions uh, which have made, for example, progress on Eurozone or on, on, on migration almost impossible. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, the time, the time will tell. Uh, what she also seems to be saying is that she wants uh, the citizens to be part of this reflection process on the future of Europe. So, for example, she promised to create this conference on the future of Europe. Um, but again, the question is, will it be just an empty shop? Uh, or will it be a meaningful tool, for example, to keep this momentum of the increased, I would say, democratic participation uh, in this European Parliament's elections. What I see for the moment, and I know that I've been extremely long-winded, so I'm wrapping up, um, what I see at the moment is that she, it seems to me, she wants this conference on the future of Europe to focus predominantly on issues like the, you know, Spitzenkandidaten system that we talked about on numerous occasions. But frankly, the citizens do not really care about that. You know, in this European Parliament's elections, only eight percent said that they went to the polls because they wanted to influence the makeup of the future European Commission presidency. So I, what I would really like her to look at is actually try to come up with a more meaningful way of engaging citizens, say, by, you know, citizens' dialogues, etc. And this is still something that I'm not clear whether she's, you know, she's willing uh, to entertain. That's really interesting. Also, it's not not a straight way forward, both for increasing democratic legitimacy of the EU and also for dividing some of these deep gaps that you've uh, you've mentioned earlier between member states. We'll see over the next couple of weeks how these hearings go, whether von der Leyen chosen ones will make it into the inner circle and how she will begin her presidency. I'm sure we'll talk about this 
again and again. There's a few big themes already emerging. I'd love to uh, talk to our researchers, for example, about whether and how green this commission is going to be, what it means that she wants to have a geopolitical commission. More exciting podcasts to come. But for now, thank you very much, Agata, for talking with me. Thank you very much for getting my view from Brussels. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CEA underscore EU.